I'm Elaine Elrod. Welcome back to Dramatic Impact. We're continuing our series of interviews centered around The Invisible Project. This time, I'm presenting the interview with director and facilitator David Van Bell. And next month will be the interview with actor Richard Lee C. I hope you enjoy it. Now I'm here with David Van Bell, who, of course, is the director and the facilitator for The Invisible Project. So, David, we've talked before because you were in episode three, way back at the beginning of the podcast. And in that one, we talked about your career with One Yellow Rabbit and also your independent career as a director and a playwright and an actor and a singer. So this seems to be a whole other strand of your career. I'm just wondering, because this is um, performance creation, which kind of intersects with what you do in the rest of your theater career, but this is also theater done with people outside the theater community. And I noticed that you're part of Performance Creation Canada. Are, Are you on the steering committee? I was on the steering committee for the Calgary meeting, which just happened this past fall. Okay, and so it just made me wonder, is this a key focus also of your career as an artist? Well, I like making new works. I've always liked working on new plays, and particularly when you can create a play with a group of artists with a specific set of information that you're dealing with, uh, in this case, the homeless community in Calgary. It makes for an exciting project to get a group of artists together to make something new that reflects on an experience that you have together. Have you done similar projects to this one? Kind of. I made a show a number of years ago with Jennifer Roberts called Caffeine Ladies, which was kind of another documentary piece about middle-aged women who worked for coffee shops. Um, But this is more of an expansion on that. I think the interviews went a little bit more in-depth, and also the the subject matter is very different. I also had the chance to sort of create the show with a a larger group of people, whereas uh, Caffeine Ladies was made with just a, a solo actress. So just for the listener's sake, I'll just explain that at the beginning of this project, Douglas Witt, he's a mask creator. He does masks for theater and I suppose for other things as well. Film and television. Okay. And he did, he led and facilitated a workshop with the DI shelter and the mustard seed shelter creating masks. And then you and Aviva Zimmerman, who is your assistant, were there at that time and conducted interviews with people who were participating in the mass workshops. Have I got that right? Yeah, that's right. We kind of, Aviva and I sat in on the mask making workshops as participants. We didn't want to be leaders in there. We wanted to leave that up to Doug. We just sort of came in and made masks along with everybody else as a means of just getting comfortable with people. And there were a series of mask making workshops over the course of a few months. Some were at the mustard center, uh, mustard seed, and some were at the drop-in center. So was it always a plan to tie in the mask making workshop with the Invisible Project? Yes. I think the whole idea of working with masks started with Douglas Wett even before I was hired. The city, uh, Don Ford, who is sort of arranging this whole project of This Is My City, this year-long initiative, she got in contact with Douglas first, and then they talked about the idea of making a show, and then they brought me on board. Okay, well, that, that helps me understand. And so... Did you have to think about how you were going to approach people for the interviews or just tell me a little bit about how you went about that and also how people responded? Well, we talked to people who seemed to kind of want to make themselves available to us. If there was somebody that was sort of, 
you know, really was giving out the signals that they wanted to just, you know, not be bothered. Fair enough. That's their right. And uh, we also gave people the right to, when we asked them if they would, wouldn't mind being interviewed, we gave them the right to say, no, no thanks. So we talked to people who chose to talk to us. And just tell me a little bit about your impressions of the way people responded to you. I was surprised at the kind of openness that I got from some people. And we really noticed a difference between people that we interviewed that had been in the mask workshop. We did some interviews from people that hadn't taken the mask workshop and we got very different interviews. I would start each interview by asking these people just about their mask and to talk about their mask and just, you know, why they made it. And and somehow that seemed to kind of open a door to other things. And one of the things that I thought was the most interesting is the way that the people that we met refused to let themselves sort of be defined by homelessness because they have all kinds of other things about them as well beyond just being homeless and in the same way that I don't just define myself by being an artist I am I am many different things. Yeah, that makes sense. So could you talk about some mask that sticks out in your mind or some mask in the person's story or I'd like to to talk about the mask, but also the other interviews that you did. The masks, I think one of the things that was most interesting about the masks is the way in which sometimes the masks would resemble the people who had made them. Doug is very specific in his workshops to not give the participants any kind of direction as to what kind of mask they should make or a topic for the mask or subject matter for the mask. He just lets them make whatever they want. And we found that the masks that got made very often bore a resemblance to the people that made them. One of the masks that we use in the show is a a beautiful mask, actually. The young man who made it is very talented. It features, and we talk about it in the show, it features, it's sort of a, a half mask, sort of a demon's mask that has two horns, but one of them is broken off. And I asked him what he called the mask, and he said, experience. And I thought that was a really interesting title for that particular mask. Wow. And so that person agreed to have the mask be used in the show, right? That's right. The mask is on loan to us. Once the show's done, he's uh, welcome to have it back. And so when he said experience, did he elaborate about that? I wouldn't say that he explicitly elaborated on it, but well, he talked a little bit about how the the mask or the character in the mask got into a fight and lost. And now he knows not to fight and be an idiot, as he says. And, you know, he said it very flippantly, but there was... There's obviously some truth beyond that. Okay, and and then those words are, in effect, in the play as well? Yeah, that's right. What I wanted to do was to take these video interviews and uh, get the actors to reproduce as faithfully as they could the content of the interviews, almost photorealistically to pick up the ahs and the ums. Uh, You know, I transcribed these interviews before we began rehearsal as directly, as verbatim as I could, as a means of sort of presenting, trying to present a document to the audience that had as little of us as artists in the way, because there's a lot of work about homelessness, I think, that can get very sentimental or that's not accurate or it's we have sort of this outside of you without actually sort of diving in. And, and we know that the experience of the lives of the people that live at the drop-in center are very different from our own lives and that we can't pretend that we know what it's like. So instead, we just ask them questions and then try to reproduce their answers as faithfully as we could. Did that influence how you chose your actors? I don't know if you had auditions. 
Yeah, the auditions is sort of an interesting process in that I felt like I couldn't I felt like I couldn't ask them to come and bring me a monologue from the cherry orchard and that, you know, that, that I kind of felt that that wouldn't give me much useful information. <laughs> so what I did instead was I, from the headshots and resumes that I got, I selected people that I wanted to interview. And then I would meet them at a coffee shop and we would talk for a while and I would ask them to meet me for coffee, but also to bring me something fantastic. That was my instructions to them and that, that they could perform for me on the street. Something performative and something that was fantastic. So we'd talk for a while at the coffee shop and we'd go, well, should we go for a walk? And we'd go for a walk and then as we walk, I'd say, well, you know, do you have something fantastic for me? And then they would give me a little something fantastic, whatever that is, you know. That's amazing. <laughs> so like what kind of things did they do? Well, Molly did this little impromptu performance piece in a park. We found some, uh, she started with a piece of found text when we got out of the coffee shop. She said, okay, I'm just going to find a little piece of found text. And she was going to go and look at a, a newspaper. But written on the newspaper box was this phrase that said, illegal to be homeless. And so that was her found text. And then when she did the performance for me, it was like a little movement piece in the park, which used the phrase, illegal to be homeless. Did people gather around and watch these performances? Well, they were really impromptu. So sometimes there would be people around and they would kind of stop and kind of watch for a little while. And then, uh, you know, they were maybe two, three minute performances or somebody would just sort of walk by and go, wow, that's really interesting. And what I wanted to find out about the actors was, are they adventurous? Are they willing to just sort of dive into something and just make something? Because that's a useful skill for performance creation. You need to actually see things in order to know if it's going to work or not. I called it in rehearsal, I call it the Missouri Principle, and that's from Blake Brooker, uh, who's uh, artistic director of One Yellow Rabbit and the director of the company. And one day in rehearsal, we were working on something, and he said, well, I'm Missouri. And we're like, what? what do you mean you're Missouri? And he's like, it's the show me state. So he meant, like, show me what, you, what it is. And, you know, then we'll know if it works or not. You know, you can't just talk about things. You actually have to do things. And then you'll know if it's going to work or not. And so I was looking for actors that would be just willing to try things and experiment and play with the idea that we were going to make lots of stuff for the show and not all of, the, of it was going to end up in the play. That's interesting. And this just popped into my head that also... I have no idea if this is true, but maybe as a homeless person, in a sense, you're in a, a fishbowl. And so you would need to be able to do things with people looking at you. Yeah, definitely. Uh, a certain amount of bravery, a certain uh, a certain amount of willingness to just engage other people. Because, um, you know, our research was all around us here at the Drop-In Center when we made it. And uh, a big part of our work was in just engaging people while we were here. And in working in a, a sort of a non-traditional rehearsal environment as well. You know, we had a little sort of a safe space for us up on the third floor where we would rehearse. And that was important for us. But we also made a big part of our process, the going out down onto the second floor where everybody hangs out to serve meals and just to chat. And we went down as well and just you know, like uh, played guitar a little bit before Christmas and just sort of hung out and met people. That's really interesting. The other thing that popped into my head was a long time ago, I was in a performing improvisation group. And one of the first things we were asked to do before we started performing was to just go out amongst strangers and do something. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, and that was a, uh, I admired the fact that the, the folks that worked for me were willing to just sort of perform on a street corner and just sort of do something. Yeah, it's like, once you've done that, you're not as terrified of improvising in front of an audience. So 
if you could just walk us through a little bit of how you do this performance creation kind of project. Like you've given us a little bit of a hint about the interviews on video and wanting them to reproduce it faithfully, but there's a lot more to the show that's more stylized and very creative. So how do all those ideas come about? And is there like a structure to the rehearsals and to the creation process? Sure. Performance creation is, uh, in my mind, is a process of going from not knowing a lot of things to knowing a few things. And so when you begin, there's all kinds of stuff that you just, you don't know. We came in with a few things that we knew. We knew we wanted to work with interviews, and I had some transcriptions from a number of interviews to bring in, um, some of which we used, some of which we didn't. So we knew we had material to work on immediately, and so that was all right. But there was a whole lot of other things that we knew that we were just going to discover over the course of those four weeks. So, And a lot of things that I just had to be comfortable with not knowing when we got in how the show was going to sort of fit together. We went down in our first week, we kind of structured our first week heavily around research so that we would go down and make observations and then try to recreate those observations in the, in the rehearsal room. So first few days we would go down and serve lunch and I would say, okay, over lunch, I would say to the actors, I want each of you to find three bodies down there. And then when we come back up after lunch, I want you to recreate those bodies, uh, the physicality of those bodies as, as specifically, as scientifically as you can. And so we would do that, and that would be a, a means of, of building some of the movement pieces. Uh, those bodies ended up sort of inhabiting these movement pieces that we do. And there's some really interesting bodies around here in the, in the drop-in center, a lot of really extreme physicalities, people that are just sort of, um, for, because of life experience, are just sort of moving in their own unique way, you know, and that's sort of their own unique way of getting through. We built these series of movement pieces based on observations. We would often stop and say, okay, so what are we seeing? So we have like a little drug dealer's dance, for example, in here. And then one of the, the, when we were up in the third floor rehearsing, we had windows all around us. It was one of the most beautiful rehearsal spaces I've ever been in because there's tons of natural light and whatnot. But we also had a beautiful view of sort of the comings and goings outside the drop-in center under this bridge that's just outside the drop-in center and watching deals go down, watching the cops interact with people. And that was a really uh, a big resource for us to be able to, you know, it was kind of like our little duck blind just to sort of watch what the, you know, what bodies were doing in, in space and then we'd bring them in and we'd, we'd reproduce those relationships as well. And to give sort of a series of snapshots of some of the things that we were seeing one of the principles at stake in performance creation is that you try to say yes to everything before you say no. And so if something grabs you, instantly your thought is that, oh, well, that might be useful for the show. So one day we had a difficult day of rehearsal and I, on my way out of the drop-in center, I just saw two lovers by the door of the drop-in center, just very much into each other and really, and the smiles on their faces as they just kind of drank each other in. And it was like, okay, well, that, that's a little bit that's got to go in the show. Just that little snapshot of those two lovers in the midst of whatever situation they're in, finding each other and finding solace in each other. Yeah, that is something that really stood out for me in the show, the, the two lovers looking into each other's eyes and touching each other's faces. And there were, in the audience, at least two couples, I noticed, that were together and touching each other. Yeah, we've had uh, really interesting responses from the homeless community when they come out and, and seen the show. The laughs are very different. 
from people from the homeless community when they watch. Uh, some of the things that, as a company, we felt, oh, you know, that's a really dark place, uh, would be a place of laughter, um, because it was more like a laughter of recognition or whatever. One of the characters talks about, you know, how the drug dealers in Calgary are really aggressive. You know, and they'll, they, they come up to you, you want, you need, you're looking. And that got laughs from some people, and we thought, wow, okay, yeah, uh, fair enough, you know. So the homeless community is making the effort to come out and see you at City Hall? Yes, every show that we've done thus far, we've had uh, at least a significant portion from the homeless community, which pleases me a lot. This was going to be a difficult show to make, I knew, from the perspective of meeting your audience, because in the show we kind of have three different audiences. We have folks from City Hall that come down and watch the show, so sort of bureaucrats who may not be you know, interested or involved in theater. We have kind of the hipster crowd from One Yellow Rabbit that are coming down to see the, a show at the High Performance Rodeo. And then we have members of the homeless community as well that come down and see the show and have their own agenda and their own perspective on the show. I wanted to ask you about the masks. Have you, I imagine that you've done mask work before, but have you? Just a little bit. I used mask in the first show that I ever directed professionally when I was oh, 26 or so. So that was a little over 10 years ago. So it's been kind of good to go back to mask work. And could you explain to the listeners how you think the masks affect the aesthetic of the show? The masks are used in the movement pieces in the show, and to give kind of an idea of what the masks look like, they are black cloth hoods with Velcro on them that sort of cover the face entirely, and no eye holes, or the eye holes are sort of screened out, so you don't really see the performer's eyes. How do they see... Uh, they do have eye holes with like a little bit of netting behind it, so they can kind of see through and still leave their eyes sort of invisible. And on these masks, uh, they stick pieces of features that are kind of sections of masks that Doug made, fragments, an eye, or a mouth and a chin, or a brow, or whatever, a section of a face. And the rest of the face is sort of comprised by things that we found on the street. Before we began rehearsal, I sent the company out and said, you know, be magpies, grab things that just catch your eye on the street. So a dirty playing card, uh, part of a discarded uh, Remembrance Day poppy, money, a half a Visa card, uh, all of those kinds of things. And they have Velcro on them as well, and they get stuck on and they sort of complete the face. The masks are kind of like... If I think about it, they're sort of like a, an outsider's view, like our own perspective on what we see on the streets from our own observations, with the idea being that we're kind of not really getting the whole picture, the, the full-fleshed human being. And so when we finish one of these movement pieces, the actor peels off the pieces of the mask and puts them in their pocket and then pulls off the hood and starts speaking in their natural face, in, their, in the actor's face. And that was kind of a way of engaging the idea that, at the very least, these interviews are what people told us. And so something about what they wanted to reveal about themselves and not just sort of an outside view, but something that came from the inside. And I wanted to ask just the way that you integrated the mass into the rehearsal process. Was there any special ritual that you use to integrate the masks just for the actors to get used to them and to kind of feel the power of them or anything like that? Yeah, a lot of the mirror work. We actually first started by inhabiting the masks that were made in these workshops just as an exercise and uh, seeing what came out of that. But then as the mask pieces sort of started coming in, 
and they were you know sort of a gathering experience and that that we would get a few and then a few days more we get a few more douglas would sit in on rehearsal and say oh well this is what i'm seeing i'm going to make this piece and this piece and this piece and then he'd bring them in and we would have mirrors in the room so that the actors would kind of construct their own face based on mask pieces and artifacts, this collection of artifacts that we'd had that they had sort of magpied off the street. And they would try a face and we'd look at that face. Okay, well, now go to the mirror and see if you can, you know, use that face to sort of inform the body. When you're dealing with mask, I read a really interesting analogy of it in preparation for this, is that mask work is kind of like when you're wearing a mask, the whole of your body becomes like the expression of the face and the mask becomes the expression of the eyes on the face. Okay, the mask becomes the expression of the eyes on the face. Could you explain that a little more? Do you mean the eyes on the face of the person wearing the mask or the... Well, you know, when you look at somebody's face, uh, you read information out of it, you get an expression on the face and you can know something about what the body is going through, right? When you have a mask on and you're actually covering up the face, then the body has to take over in the expressiveness and the mask itself sort of serves as the eyes, which is kind of like the window to the soul, right? And so the mask itself gives information about the interior space of that person. Yeah, it's like a mysterious thing because the, you know, sort of the obvious thing is the mask doesn't actually move, right? But I guess it's a kind of the same thing that your eyes don't actually move. Well, it's up to the actor to sort of animate the mask and to let the mask animate the body. Right. Could you talk a bit about, now you've done this once, this incredible endeavor that has come out. It's resulted in an extremely powerful play and the people whose stories are reflected find it very powerful. But have there been any lessons that you've learned, something you would do differently next time or anything like that? I would love to do The Invisible Project 2, which would be like a much longer... I feel like we've just sort of skimmed the surface on it in the the time that we had. I would love to do this as a six-month project where you would spend the first month just working at the drop-in center, just like not even making anything, but just being here. And and then you could go into rehearsal after that. And I would want to talk to a broader cross-section of people. I would want to talk to somebody at the downtown business association or i would want to talk to somebody who feels resentful to the drop-in center because they don't feel safe when they walk by i would want to talk to many more people around here i'd want to talk to the staff members at the drop-in center who are fascinating and really committed and open-hearted people a much bigger project I wanted to ask you if you could give advice, because there might be people who are listening who would like to do a project like this in their own community, um, maybe not as ambitious, but just even at the basic level, what would, what would the basic advice be for what to do and what not to do? Try to be as honest as you possibly can. And that's a difficult thing because our own perspectives get in the way so easily. Try to find a way to get your own perspective in as much as you are able out of the way so that you can just let that community speak as clearly uh, as possible. And how would you have approached it differently if people from the homeless community had been performing in the play? I think that would have been a very different project. And actually, Ian Prinsloo is currently working on a project based on Maxim Gorky's The Lower Depths with another group uh, as part of another program through the University of Calgary. And he is sort of going through that process right now. It would have been a very different process and maybe, a, in a sense, a process that I'm not sure that I'm 
qualified for because there's a lot of social work in that as well. One of the things that you deal with in the homeless community is that people's lives are chaotic and so getting to rehearsal on a regular basis isn't necessarily a priority. And so that's, uh, that would be a factor to be dealt with. I really appreciate, as usual, I appreciate all of your time. And this was an awesome experience to be here today. And I'm looking forward to the performance at City Hall. Thanks, Elaine. Thanks for having me on. Mm-hmm.